you have your Bibles, we'll be in Zechariah. If you're not sure where that is, uh, go to the middle of the Bible and then find Matthew. It's not really the middle, (laughs) but uh, yeah, two books back. You see Malachi to the left, and then you'll see Zechariah. So this is the next to last book. Uh, We do know Sam taught Malachi last week. We as staff members that know the Bible do know that Zechariah comes before Malachi, but I was under the weather, so I had Sam as plan B, and that's why I'm here today. So this is not actually the last book in the Old Testament, but it is the next to last. But it's uh, after this, we'll have uh, next week, I think there's like an intertestamental. I believe it's Will going to talk about the 400 years in between the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament. And then we will be in the New Testament and the gospel. So we're moving right along. But we're walking through... All the books of the Bible, if this is your first time to come, why are we in Zechariah? Well, we've already done all the other books before then, and, uh, and we probably wouldn't do a ton in Zechariah otherwise, uh, which is good for me, but also uh, the job probably don't know a whole lot about it, uh, but it's also kind of scary for me because I had to learn a lot about it myself. <clears throat> Zechariah uh, is... One of the largest, it's, you know, you got the major prophets, then you got the minor prophets. The minor prophets are not minor because they're sad. It's not minor because they're just minor because generally they're shorter books. Zechariah is like a major minor prophet. It's the biggest of the minor prophets. It has 14 chapters, so we will be here until 930. I'm just joking. I have my clock right here, so I know not to go too long. Uh, Now, we're not going to read the whole book, but uh, we'll look through some highlights. Zechariah and Haggai, they're like buddies, they're contemporaries, they're, they're prophets at the same time period. The time period we're talking about now is they're coming back from the exile, the Babylonian exile, and they're coming back uh, to, to, their, to their homeland, and they're going to start rebuilding. They're gonna, they've been told to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, and then, of course, they've been told to rebuild the temple. Uh, at this point... Uh, they're about 12 years into rebuilding, where there's been about, uh, for 12 years, nothing has happened with the rebuilding of a temple. Uh, and so it's about half completed at this point, and so God is going to speak to Zechariah, and he's going to try to encourage them that th- why it's important to finish building, rebuilding the temple. Uh, this genre of scripture, and as we look at portions of it, uh, it's very imagery-driven, symbol-driven. Uh, the genre is actually called apocalyptic, and uh, it's not my specialty, but if you think apocalyptic uh, scriptures, you think of Revelation, you think of Daniel, you think of, and now after tonight, you should think of Zechariah. Most of it is, uh, is apocalyptic in its language. Weird, unusual pictures, symbols, uh, things after I read and you read, you're like, I don't know what that means. But uh, God got through to, Zephan- to Zechariah what he was trying to say. But still to us, you're like, I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm not here to tell you everything that everything means in the book, but it's, uh, it's apocalyptic, very unusual in how it's written and the stories. Uh, and as we look at this, you have to kind of put yourselves uh, in their shoes, Okay. It's 21st century in Midland, Texas is a lot different than Israel and 500-something B.C. when they're rebuilding the temple. Uh, other than a dry climate, everything else is very different. Okay, uh, So we have to put ourselves in their shoes. There are people living that remember Solomon's temple. 
There are people living that remember the grandeur and the majesty and, 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 and uh, all the, the beauty and the gorgeousness of this, of Solomon's temple. Uh, all the gold and silver was laid in it. And now, of course, it was destroyed. They're coming back. They're trying to rebuild that. And now, right now, it's nothing more than maybe a hut. <laughs> uh, and so they're a little deflated. Uh, and what the Israelites are struggling with, and maybe that's why they're not motivated, they haven't done anything in about 12 years to continue rebuilding it, they're struggling with, is God really done with us? Does God really care about us? Does he have a plan for us, and not just us, but also his temple, Jerusalem? Does it really matter? Well, throughout the book of Zechariah, God is going to say, uh, yes. It's going to matter a lot for the future. The temple is going to play a huge part in God's plan for the covenant with Israel and for the gospel to spread in the New Testament, all that. The temple is huge. And uh, so it's going to talk about that, but we have to remember that these people are a little bit, uh, they're bummed. Uh, looking at their surroundings, and we're not sure if God is really there, but he is. It's interesting how many statements in the book of Zechariah actually appear in the book of Revelation. Uh, just a few, and don't try to write these down because you won't be able to, but the measuring of Jerusalem is mentioned in one chapter 1, verse 16. That's mentioned in chapter 11 of Revelation. The horses are mentioned in chapter 1 and 6 of Zechariah. Chapter 6 and 19 of Revelation. You got the four horsemen is mentioned. Some of these, uh, these eight visions we're going to talk about a little bit more detail, but uh, you got the gathering of the nations in Zechariah 2. You got that in Revelation 7. Chapter 3 of Zechariah mentions the garments of the righteous. Uh, the, the idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's mentioned in Revelation in many chapters in Revelation. Chapter 4 of Zechariah talks about the lamp or the menorah. That's mentioned in chapter 11 of Revelation. Two witnesses are mentioned in chapter 4, Zechariah. Chapter 11, Revelation. So I could go on. There's a ton of them. The crown, the son of man, Pierce shepherd, the earthquake in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem are all mentioned in Zechariah. And they're all mentioned in Revelation. But now as we walk through the book a little bit, again, it, some unusual images. It starts out, uh, let's look at Zechariah at the very beginning. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. So he starts out with this call to repentance, this uh, don't do as your fathers did. We've had prophets before me that have come, and they don't heed our words. They don't do what God has told them to do, which is the problem of Israel uh, throughout all the books so far in the Old Testament is it seems like we're walking with God, we're great with God, the next chapter we have idols, we're turning from God, the next chapter we're back with God, we repent, we come back to God, the next chapter we're back to idols, we're doing our own thing, whatever God doesn't want, all those things. So he starts with the call to repentance, and then he goes into these images, these visions that Zechariah is going to have. Now, if you've had some bad dreams... Uh, I'm sure they're nothing like this. Uh, 
we have to keep in mind at this moment, and I don't, I don't think that all our dreams now is God speaking to us, okay? But in this time, God spoke to these prophets through their, their dreams or their visions, okay? So he's going to describe these eight visions, uh, and they're all going to talk about one of two things. Either they're going to encourage Israel to rebuild the temple and why it's important, or the last three of them are going to say there's going to be the judgment of God. The other thing to keep in mind is Zechariah, as God is talking to Zechariah in these dreams, he's talking about current day things, but some of the things that are in the future, he's talking about the first Jesus Christ is going to come on the earth in AD 0 to 30. He's talking about the first coming of Christ. And then some of the things are talking about the second coming of Christ. By the way, that hasn't happened. We're in between the first and the second coming of Christ. Uh, and no one knows when that will happen, but he gives a lot of images to John and here to Zechariah. Some things to look for that would be a sign that Christ could come again. So he's going to start with these eight images. The first image, and we're just going to walk through them a little bit. I don't have time to explain them all, and the commentary after commentary gets me rather confused and cross-eyed as I try to understand what these visions are. So I'm going to summarize them as we go. The first one is the man on a red horse. Uh, In chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, he describes this vision of this man on a red horse. Look at verses 10 through 11 of chapter 1. The man who stood, stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth. Behold, all the earth is resting quietly. This guy on this red horse is measuring things. And the idea here is, uh, of course, Israel's rebuilding the temple, but God is saying to Israel, I am still here watching this. I, am st- I know it looks bad, it looks grim, it looks dark, it looks like it's not going to happen, but, and it might not be as great as it was back in the day, but God is saying to them, I still have dominion over all of this, and my plan will come to fruition. And he has a plan for the temple. Uh, so God is going to harp on that the temple needs to be sacred. Uh, always he's going to give that message to the Jews. And they need to keep it sacred. And in Malachi, the, previous, the next book, the, the priests were not, were not doing uh, sacred things, keeping it sacred, the temple. Uh, but it's going to go all the way to fast forward to, to, to uh, Jesus' time. And you're going to see the Pharisees, the Sadducees are not... They're going through the motions, but it's all exterior. It's not interior. It's not the heart of the matter. And they've allowed things that are impure to come into the temple. And ultimately, God is going to say, yeah, the temple and the way that should be worshipped, I'm going to do away with that. Jesus is going to die on the cross. The temple veil is going to be torn in two. The temple is going to be destroyed. In 70 AD by the Romans, they're going to come in and wipe that temple out. And the temple has not been built. It's not built right now. Since 70 AD, when the Romans came and destroyed the temple for good, uh, the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet, but it will be rebuilt, and uh, we'll get to that. So this guy on the red horse uh, uh, needs to be holy, need to return to Christ. Uh, the temple hasn't been rebuilt again at this point. Uh, to this day, it's still desolate. So then the next one is the four horns and the four craftsmen. Uh, look over at ch- uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Or verse 20, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up 
their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. The message here theologically is the Lord's judgment on the nations is going to be those that persecuted Israel, uh, God's going to judge them. Uh, The horn, anytime it's mentioned, is always a symbol of power. God is showing his power here. God is saying, I know the nations, they, they, they plummeled you, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, they even control you now. One day the Greeks, the Romans in the future are going to come and they're going to do what they want with you. Uh, but God is telling him through this vision, uh, God's going to bring judgment on the nations that bring judgment, that he uses as instruments to bring judgment on Israel. Next is the surveyor, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The surveyor. Look at verses 2 through 5. So I said, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, run, speak this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall for a fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. The guy comes out and he's measuring things. Okay, so he's a surveyor. He's giving the measurements of Jerusalem. Uh, God, through this vision, is saying that the city where you're living in, uh, where you're building the temple, where the walls are going back up, uh, I have an enormous bright future for this city. Uh, this city plays a huge part. Uh, it's not throughout I mean, we're in the 21st century now, but if throughout history, if you look in Israel, became its own nation when, like 1948, uh, six, somewhere after World War II, it's its own nation. What happened a couple of years ago uh, that was important? Tel Aviv used to have the embassy of the United States. Now where is the embassy of the United States? It's in Jerusalem. So you see these signs of, and, and Jews are still scattered all over the place, but uh, as the end times are coming together, the Jews are going to start heading back there more and more. And then, uh, well, I'll get to that in a little bit, but uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about the end times yet totally. So this surveyor, and he's saying, this city is very valuable to me, and he knows every inch and, and all the measurements of it, and he's going to protect it. Then the next one is the cleansing of the high priest, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is that not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Joshua was the high priest. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put on clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. The high priest is is putting on new clothes, new garment. He's putting on righteous clothes. He's he's getting rid of the unclean things, and he's putting on a righteous. He's being holy and right in front of God. Uh, the idea of this, uh, the cleansing of the high priest, has huge implications, implication, whatever that word is. Uh, it's important because why? Well, uh, as Gentile Christians that right now that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the scripture says that Jesus Christ is our high priest. 
when God sees someone that has accepted him as Lord and Savior, uh, he doesn't see all of my filth anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And how is that possible? Well, that's only possible through the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, the, the Passover lamb at Passover, and that would be Jesus Christ that died on the cross. And because of his perfect, without sin, his perfect death, he atoned for all sin of all time, of all mankind. So Christ is our high priest, and Satan brings this accusation against uh, Joshua here, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great picture of Satan brings accusations against me and against you. You're not worthy to be saved. Look what you did yesterday. Look what you did last hour. Look what you thought here. Look what you did 10 years ago. You don't deserve to be saved. You can't stand before a holy God. That's true. Without the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, I can't stand before a holy God. I am covered in sin and, 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 and filth. But I'm a new creature because of Jesus Christ. I'm a new creation. So you have this imagery. Uh, it's also the picture of the, uh, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ is going to ultimately do. Next one, the fifth one, be the gold lampstand and two olive trees. These are all things we just all, have you all had a vision of these things recently? Uh, no, but God wanted to communicate to Zechariah through these means. So chapter 4 is the gold lampstand and two olive trees. Chapter 4, uh, look at verse 4. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So he uses this imagery of this gold lampstand, these two olive trees uh, that are standing uh, by it. Uh, and it's going to say it's going to, they're going to be empowered by God's spirit. It's an important image to realize that uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, the high priest, they stand beside the Lord. Uh, but they only have power, just like in the New Testament when we come to Acts and when we see the apostles doing great things and healing people, right? How are they able to do that? And they get thrown in jail every other day because they're saying they're doing it by the power of Jesus Christ or by his spirit. It's the power, the Holy Spirit in them that allows them to do it. You see here the same thing. God is saying it's through, God accomplishes his will through regular people that he empowers through his spirit. He's going to do that to Joshua and Zerubbabel, and, uh, and he still does that to people like us today. Um, and it's not anything that we do or by our strength or our talent. It's simply by the Holy Spirit that empowers me to do it. So you have to surrender to that spirit as you follow God's will for your life. Um, in this fifth vision, God would be like saying, I have provision that will safeguard Israel. And, and what, that's, what that provision is, is it's my power. God is not limited. His power is unlimited. And his power is manifested through people. So surrender to his power and you're capable of being used. Now go rebuild that temple. <laughs> and I'll give you the power and the strength to do it. Um, the next three are more of judgment. Okay, now judgment, some of them is like individual judgment for them having sin. Uh, Israelites have struggled with sin throughout all of their time on earth, just like we all have. 
but also he's going to talk about removal of sin also for, as, as a nation. So the first one is the flying scroll in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The flying scroll. When I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll, and he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I, I see a flying scroll. Not a flying squirrel. That would be something, <laughs> that would be something way different. Sorry, I don't know where I went that pit. It does say scroll in my version, so we'll go with that. <laughs> I dressed up as a flying squirrel. That's what I actually did. In my previous church in Houston, we had vacation, we had vacation Bible school? Yeah, and we had to do motions for it. And I don't know where I got an acorn hat and I had a cape and I was the flying squirrel. Yeah, that has nothing to do with this at all. That's good. That's good. I see a flying squirrel, I mean squirrel, and its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Uh, 20 cubits would be like 30 feet and by 10 feet. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. Does that make perfect sense to you all? I really had you all with the flying squirrel. I should have milked that more. The flying squirrel, we have no idea what that means. Uh... He's measuring again. He says, Israel, uh, Israel is where they are because of their sin. God is, was not surprised that they were uh, taken into captivity by the Babylonians and that their temple was destroyed. He's not surprised by that. Uh, the holy, just God decided that he had had enough. But then now he's decided they're going to return back. And uh, he's going to re- not totally, he, he still sees their sin, but he's going to overlook it. Okay. There has to be a price for the sin. Maybe they've paid at this point. But then he's going to say, as a nation, I'm going to uh, overlook your sin. And that's the woman in the basket, which is the next one. Uh, chapter 5, verses 7 and 11. The woman in the basket. This is not a sexist thing. It's just a woman in a basket. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it's a basket that's going forth. He also said this is there resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down to the basket and threw the lead cover off its mouth. And I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. Quite the imagery here. Wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. God has some really unusual ways to communicate to his people. Uh, maybe you've had dreams like this. I don't know our visions, but uh, unusual visions, but every bit of it is important in how he's going to communicate. He's trying to say, your national sin is going to be removed. This woman is going to come to the basket and with the stork and the flying wings, and she's going to take it away. Okay? Nationally, God is saying, I'm going to restore you, Israel. I'm going to forgive your national sin. But there had to be judgment. The last one is the four chariots, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It shows that the Lord's sovereignty over all creation. Again, that the nations that God used for judgment temporarily, uh, he's going to bring judgment upon them. And he's going to, of course, do that later on in the second coming as well. So, as long as that is crystal clear, I am not going to ask if there's questions because I'm sure I have questions. I don't know. 
But I think what God is trying to say through these images, number one, build the temple is important. Number two, uh, your sin, there had to be judgment for it, but I'm going to restore you and I want you to follow me, which is always God's thing. I want you to get rid of what you need to get rid of and I want you to follow me alone, nothing else, no other little g-gods. God is saying, I know it looks bad. I know uh, it looks like Jerusalem is, is, is never going to be the same. But be encouraged. I'm measuring it. Everything's wonderful. Uh, and that's what God would be saying in the first few visions. Eight visions, actually. So, with all of that said, then you come to the Q&A part, which I'm sure they have some questions after that. But there are questions in, ch- in chapters 7 and 8. Israel, the, the nation of Israel are going to bring these, these priest questions and they're going to ask God to, to they, they want to hear from Yahweh. What is your answer to this? So their, their question is in verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3. And to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets saying, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I, as I have done for so many years? They're asking, should we keep worshiping? Should I keep doing or start doing what we used to do in the temple? Now that it's not anything like it used to be, should I still worship you, God? God is going to answer, but he answers in only a way that only God can answer. He doesn't answer them directly, but look at his Uh, The next two chapters is his answer, but look at what he says. I'm not going to look at everything he says, but look at verse 8. No, we'll start in verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4. He starts with a rebuke of ritualism, okay, which God is always against going through the motions just to go through the motions. This means absolutely nothing to me, but I'm going to do it just because I know I'm supposed to do it and check the box. Uh, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying say to all the people of the land and to the priest when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years did you really fast for me for me when you eat and when you drink do you not eat and drink for yourselves should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and all the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and south and the low and were inhabited Didn't you just do that stuff for yourself? That's what God's saying. Uh, uh, You don't see them responding. But the next one, he reminds them of past disobedience. And look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion. Everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. God says, basically, he just says, do what's right. He doesn't really answer them straightforwardly, but evidently through this book and other books of the Bible, God thinks he's God. He really believes he's God, and he believes he's calling the shots, and that we actually are not calling the shots. Um, You and I are not God. And maybe God doesn't think I should question my service to him. He thinks perhaps I ought to serve him no matter what. Not a matter of what I gain or don't gain in this life or in the afterlife. I should simply serve God and 
and be loyal to God because for sure, if you look at Jesus Christ, he was ultimately loyal to us that didn't deserve any of his death of his son on the cross. God says, do what's right. This isn't in my notes, but it's my two cents. It's been a weird year, year and a half, whatever we're in at this point, right? And you don't really know who to listen to, what to. And if you listen to the news, and if you watch the news, it's crazy times in our nation and in the world. Things that we have never seen happen in the world in our nation is happening all the time. Our nation, this is being recorded, our nation doesn't have a systemic racism problem. Our nation has a sin problem. And the news and the media that whatever you watch, whoever you're scrolling through and listening to their podcasts and whatever, there's a sin problem. And then ultimately it's going to boil down to individually, not as a nation, but individually, did I submit to Christ or not? Did I yield to who who and what he did on the, on the cross when he died for me? Did I submit myself to that and say, I don't want to be in charge of my life. I'm going to yield to God. I'm going to serve him. Or did I not? We spend all our time, in the na- and the news spends all our time, and shows all the problems of our nation and our world, which there's a lot of problems. And if you read the Bible, there's going to be more problems. It's not going to be less problems. It's going to be more problems. Until ultimately... Christ comes back and makes it all right. But I just challenge you. We are challenged as Christians to live and to, 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 learn, to learn the scriptures, to live a certain way, and to show compassion and, and all these things. And it says that, right, to all people, okay? You can only control so many things. And if my job is to make sure that America stays number one in the world for all time, I don't I don't see America a whole lot in Revelation mentioned. I think America has its ups and downs, and it comes and goes just like most nations do, powerful nations. Uh, I would challenge you, and, I, I, and y'all are here. A lot of people have used the last year to not go to church anymore. Now that I can watch church and it's streamed or whatever, I can watch whoever, pastor this, pastor that, pastor what, I can do whatever. The importance of the church, and you're going to see here in the temple of God, is of huge importance to God. Right now in the New Testament, the church is now New Testament church or synagogues. We don't have synagogues anymore, but the the church of God is of huge importance to God. Don't minimize that and say, and allow the enemy to whisper lies to say, it doesn't matter if you go there or not. You need the encouragement of other believers. You need to be encouraging other believers. Uh, we're not built for isolation. For a year of isolation doesn't do anyone good. And that's what a lot of people have had. Um, so that wasn't in my notes at all. So I'm going to go long now. All right, we're moving on to chapters 9 and 11. God is God and we are not. Chapters 9 through 11, you're going to see the picture of the coming Messiah. Uh, these verses are going to be of huge importance. We're not going to look at all of them, but look at uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Again, the whole point of this book is to, there's going to be a future glory that's going to happen at Jerusalem, and your part right now in 500-something B.C. and rebuilding that temple is going to play a little part in God's huge plan. Okay? 
So here we fast forward way to the coming of the king. It says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the, the foal of a donkey. Did Jesus do that? Yep. Yep, he came in on a donkey. And what were all the people doing on that day when he came in on a donkey? Hosanna, Hosanna, he is our king. Now, their idea of a king is someone that's going to totally save their nation, and now Israel's going to be this huge superpower, and, uh, and he's going to reign on his horse and just strike down anyone that opposes us. This earthly kingdom is what they're looking for. But they were sold on who this, this king was and that they were going, he was going to be their king. How long did it take for them to change their allegiance to him? About five days. About five days. They believed Jesus was the king of the righteous, victorious one on Sunday, but by Friday they would all reject him. I made a side note. Mob rule is not good. To necessarily be part of the mob is not necessarily a good thing unless the mob's really doing the right thing. <clears throat> Some people today don't care. They just want to get on the news, I think. But moving on. Uh, in Matthew, in the Gospels, Jesus is brought in front of all the religious leaders of his day, and he's going to be put on trial. And Pilate is going to give them a choice. Take Barabbas or take Jesus. We're going to crucify one of these. And you would think, there's a whole mob around around. You would think they would say, give us the, 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 he was a bad criminal in his day. You think they would say Barabbas. Crucify Barabbas. But no, they wanted him to give him Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. The chief priests get amongst the mob, and they get the mob to reject the king. They kill Jesus, and uh, they kill him outside on the Golgotha Hill. Since that point, the Jews have been rejecting Jesus Christ as Messiah ever since then. What the nation of Israel is going to at some point, and we're going to see here in Zechariah, they're going to come to a point where they're going to mourn what they did to Jesus Christ. They're not there yet. But that's going to happen. Verse 9, I talks about this coming Messiah. He is humble and he's going to come. And he does that. There's going to be a restoration. Flash, uh, go forward to chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. And I'll start in verse 7. The Lord will say the, the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants to Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Has that happened yet? Not yet. Not yet, but it will. And then I want to focus kind of the rest of my time on verses 10 through 14. 
Again, the nation of Israel is the one that rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They are the one that crucified him. Now, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and all that, they ultimately had a huge part in it. They were persuading them to do exactly what they wanted them to do. But ultimately, if you look at the whole scope of God's will, it was all a part of God's will being worked out. But the issue here is, and I, and, I, and I mentioned that, that Israel has to come to grips with what they did to Jesus Christ on the cross. They haven't done that yet. Look at verse 10. And sometime in the future, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me of whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves. For a firstborn. This is my take on the second coming. There's a lot of things of the second coming we don't know. If you disagree with me on something I'm saying, that's fine. I do not have it all figured out. This is my take. The church will be taken out. There will be a rapture. If we're still living at that point, we will be taken out. Those that are buried will be taken up. The rapture happens. At that moment, the Antichrist... Uh, will show. He'll appear. Uh, in Second Thessalonians it says, actually, we, the church, we restrain the Antichrist right now. Uh, President Trump was not the Antichrist. Obama was not the Antichrist. Hitler was not the Antichrist. Uh, he hasn't made himself known yet, but he will. Christians are taken away in the rapture. The Antichrist starts influencing all of the world. He makes this deal... Starts to say, he makes this deal with Israel and all the nations for this time of peace. And his, so the seven years, okay, you got the first three and a half years, and you got the second three and a half years. Why is it, sec- why is it divided like that? Uh, well, he makes this deal with Israel. Israel accepts the deal. It sounds like a great deal. It's peace. They rebuild the temple. Uh, and this three and a half years into it, the Antichrist does uh, blasphemous stuff inside the temple. Now, at this point, all, of, uh, all the Jews have come back to Israel, and, and we're getting ready for Christ to come back. Three and a half years into it, their eyes are opened that the Antichrist is not their Savior. And I believe what happens right at that moment is what Zechariah is explaining here. John doesn't even explain it like that in Revelation. Right now in, in Jerusalem... There's no temple. You have a mosque on it actually right now. There's no grace. They're all works oriented. They're praying constantly, going through these rituals, trying to get right with God. There's no spirit of grace and supplication or prayer. But at some point, they will look on me of whom they pierced, Jesus Christ. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. That's a reference to King Josiah that was slain by a, way back in Second, Second Kings. But you get the idea. It's going to be a mourning. And what are they mourning about? They're mourning about the true Messiah is not the Antichrist. It was Jesus Christ that we crucified way, way back when. And they get it. Their eyes are opened. They get it. They mourn. They repent. And uh, that's, that's crucial to understanding it. So there's no grace there now, but 
There will be grace at this moment because they repent of their wrongdoing. Then it goes on there in the passage, and the, the land shall mourn every family, it's, and the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of, of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves. A lot of isolation here. The families of their house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, family of Shemai by itself, and their wives. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Zechariah says in that, that David represents royalty, by himself. Nathan represents prophets by himself. Mourning. Levi, priesthood by itself. And then he says, even the women, all of Israel, mourning by itself. So they come to grips with who Jesus Christ was and who he is in that day. Then go on to chapter 14. Uh, The last thing, the end of the seven years, they go through another three and a half years and there's a lot of persecution. It does not, uh, it's difficult for them for sure. But after the end of these three and a half years, Christ is going to return and you'll have the battle of Armageddon and then Christ will show. Chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 1 Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city, the city shall be taken, the houses uh, rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Second coming of Christ. Uh, You can go to Revelation and see more. John describes it in in, in the white horse and flaming fire coming out of his mouth, all this stuff. Uh, Jesus is going to fight against the nations, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. God is saying, I've got this. You may in your lifetime not see all the big picture, everything that happens. But God's going to win. Jesus Christ is going to win. He's working out his plan. Verses 1 and 2 of that chapter, it, it happens as, as they come to Christ. And then verses 3 through 5, uh, notice he returns after the nation returns to him. They return to him when they're mourning, when they realize the Antichrist is not who we should follow. It should be Jesus. They mourn. Three and a half years later, more persecution. He returns. The temple is always built in connection with Israel's chance to come into Christ. There's this pattern. The temple is built. The temple is destroyed. The temple is built. The temple is destroyed. The temple is built. And and the Antichrist does his thing in it in the future. And then Jesus is going to come back. And then it will be over. 70 AD until 1948. Uh, the temple has, or Israel has not really been together. Uh, the temple is not rebuilt. Muslims right now have a mosque on it. Uh, but it's happening according to God's timetable. Israel, when they mocked Christ at the crucifixion and the mob is yelling at him, they should have accepted him. But they didn't. Whether it was mob rule, whether it was the, the religious leaders that got them to turn on Jesus, Whatever it was, uh, 
They did not. But after the end of the seven years, Jesus is going to come. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split Mount Zion all the way in half, all the way to the temple. And then he stands, uh, stands there, and, and then we come to the end of the age. So Zechariah has a bunch of weird images. Uh, I believe the purpose of the book is, yes, encourage them to rebuild the temple, because why? The temple is of huge importance to God throughout his plan of human history. Um, it's a powerful book. Uh, there's parts in Zechariah that uh, elaborates more about the second coming than Revelation does. Uh, the fact that they're mourning Jesus' death is going to be a huge thing. Um, so when you put Haggai and Zechariah together, uh, you get the temple has to be rebuilt before he can come back and before the Antichrist can mess it all up so they can see who Jesus really is to them. It's interesting that they don't mourn over the greatness of Christ. Uh, they see the one that is pierced. They don't see that until the temple, that they, uh, until they notice the Antichrist, he fails. Then they notice and remember what they, what they did to Jesus and pierced him, and they mourn it. The temple is always a place of God's sacrifice. Uh, we looked back in a previous chapter, you know, when Satan was accusing people and accusing Joshua and all that. Uh, the he does it in the temple, and, and the sacrifices are occurring there. And, you see, and, and it's in the temple where you see who God is and who Satan is. Uh, it's in the temple where you see the sacrifice of God the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. We don't understand Satan's full accusation against us until we see Jesus' deity on that cross for that accusation. He died for us. At the cross, I understand his mercy, his grace, his sacrificial love. Uh, one last thing and I will be done. Back in chapter 13, verse 1. They mourn of the pierced one, they do that. And then in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. That verse, uh, you ever heard, there is a fountain filled with blood. It was based off of that verse. Uh, and there's a new thing, you know, the church in the last decade or two, we try to do away with all blood talk. We don't. No one gets the blood picture. It's gross. Well, it's kind of important that we understand the sacrifice, the blood of Christ that covers. And if you factor in the whole Passover thing, you go to Exodus and you got, you know, Moses telling them, you better put that blood of the perfect lamb. You better put that over your doorpost or that death angel's coming and can kill your firstborn. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb that dies and his blood is what covered me so that the judgment and the, uh, the condemnation of God doesn't come on me. But it's by the blood of Christ that I can be saved and be called a child of God if I put my faith and trust in who he is and what he did. So personally, you and I have to make sure we've done that. If you have done that, that's great news. Then the rest of your life is to then uh, sanctification, to grow 
through reading his word, to studying his word, even books like Zechariah that are like, man, that's some weird stuff. Uh, but it's obviously important enough that God enclosed it in his canon, and it's been saved through all these years. There's something applicable for all of us throughout every book of the Bible. Um, but from this book, I would say the temple is of huge importance. They needed to rebuild it, and they do rebuild it. He encourages them for that, but he encourages them for the coming of the Messiah that's going to come, but they're going to reject him. But then there's going to be another coming of the Messiah, and he's going to make everything right. So I don't know where you are tonight. It's been a discouraging year, if we're all honest. It's been very weird. If you watch the news, you're really discouraged. Uh, But God reigns. God has his plan. He's working it out. And thank goodness Jesus Christ died for my sin and that he died for your sin. Have you accepted what he did for you? Or are you trying to do it your own way? Are you going through the motions? Because God doesn't like that in his temple. He got on the priest and all that and said, don't go through the motions. I want your whole heart. I want you to be sold out for me. For sure, he's sold out for us. Where are you with, with God? We all have a sin problem, every one of us. But uh, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the whole world's sin, 1 John 2, 2. He died for everyone's sin, your sin, my sin. He can handle it. Put your faith and trust in that. And then not be, I don't do works for God because I have to. I do works because I love him. I want to. If you love somebody, uh, if you want to put it in your marriage, if you love her, uh, you'll show that love. It's an action. It's what we hear all the time. Well, are we acting like we love God? Because for sure, through Jesus Christ, he did that for us. So that's my take on Zechariah. And I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm not going to take questions. If you have a question, you can come up here and ask me. But my mind is blown, and I went to Flying Squirrel again. So uh, that was a good time, good time. Things we do for the, in the ministry for serving God. There you go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Bible and the difference it can make in our lives. I thank you for your plan and that you, uh, you, in, you inspired these, these men and you uh, gave them huge visions and things that would happen in their present day, but also things much in the future that would happen at the first coming or second coming of Christ. But I thank you that as we study this, I hope that we can be encouraged uh, wherever we are that we are in your grand scheme, your grand plan. We have a place that you love me enough to send Jesus Christ to die for my sin and for everyone's sin in this room. I pray that if anyone in here doesn't know you, that they would put their faith and trust in who you are and what you did on the cross. We look forward to one day that the nation of Israel will realize what they did. And when that happens, that's the ultimate sign that, Jesus, you're coming back again. May we be encouraged uh, that we uh, have a Savior that loves us that much. And may we be spurned on and encouraged to live for you with our whole heart. Forgive us when we fail you. And we know that that forgiveness is only available through the blood of Christ. Thank you for that. And in his name I pray. Amen.